The White House is hopeful that a sweeping infrastructure package will invigorate the economy and modernise parts of the US. But it'll take more than just money to rebuild America's cities of the future. I'm Stephen Horne, CEO of Web's Edge, where we connect issues and audiences, and you're listening to On The Edge. President Joe Biden's trillion-dollar plan includes money for roads and bridges, water and power systems, broadband and electric vehicles, improvements that should create smarter cities. But it's also leadership at local level that's needed to facilitate all of this change, following a worldwide pandemic and historic social justice movement. Robert O'Neill is my guest today. Bob is currently a fellow at the Riley Centre for Livable Communities College of Charleston and also the former executive director of the International City and County Management Association, the ICMA. Well, Bob, thanks for doing this with us. We really appreciate you taking the time and sorting everything out for us. Oh, Stephen, it's always good to see you. And, uh, you know, I miss our annual chat. So uh, <laughs> it, it's good to, good to be back with you. Absolutely. I start the conversation by asking Bob what he thinks some of the major challenges are that U.S. cities are now facing. You know, I think everybody is is trying to to deal with what the post-COVID world will look like in terms of lifestyle and in terms of uh, public health and in terms of safety. And, um, and then I think all of us are concerned about what the restructuring of the economy may look like. Uh, you know, lots of the economy in the U.S. has come back and uh, to some extent, uh, probably quicker than a lot of experts uh, thought might. But it's still very inconsistent, uh, both by geography and by sector. And so we still have a lot of sort of issues around that. And it also pointed out, you know, serious issues around inequality and, and access and those kinds of things, which, you know, were issues before, but I think were uh, hyper visual during the COVID and the COVID recovery. And so, you know, I'll give um, the president and, and to some extent Congress and others at least uh, putting that high on the agenda and uh, not only trying to deal with the COVID dimensions, that is the public health component to it, but then what is it that we can do to accelerate the recovery and the accelerate the recovery in a way that deals with some of the inequality that has existed in the economy itself. I mean, do you think that in, in some way, do you think that becomes harder post-COVID on the basis that, you know, when, when we've got uh, the pandemic going on, everybody's super focused on what the government needs to do and, you know, and, and on solutions, if you like. But, but when the economy starts getting back to, let's say, normal again, and, you know, does do people then forget about the, the folks who are maybe less well off? Well, that's always your worry, right? Everybody sort of returns to uh, the normalcy of, of some steady state. I think, though, um, you know, certainly this administration seems to to have that as a long term agenda, uh, and uh, and I think, um, and I'll focus now on cities. I think cities in particular have deemed this is now structural issues that they're going to have to deal with, and. Um, and a number of communities around the country, obviously, are trying to develop 
in partnership with um, you know some of the state funding and, and federal funding that's become available is to try to deal with some of those structural issues in a, in a way. Um, but I worry still about the consistency of that across, uh, you know, across, I think it's going to be inconsistent and that's going to be the challenge for us, I believe. Do you think, I mean, just staying with COVID for a, for, for, for a second, do you, do you, do you actually think that, uh, you know, some, 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 uh, how should I put it, some good has come out in the way that, uh, you know, uh, leaders both at a, a local and a national level have actually dealt with this? Well, I think, I, I think it pointed out um, some of our lack of investment in uh, capacities on the public sector side that are, that have become very visible. Uh, the diminishing capacity in the public health world in the United States became enormously visible during this process. And so I think um, leaders at every level of government have, have uh, I think, started to focus on what that public health capacity needs to be. The second is, is um, and maybe this will be a, you know, a follow on, is the, 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 the infrastructure required um, to deal with the kinds of things that, I mean, we've dealt with them in isolated basis because of things like hurricanes and fires and right. kinds of things, but, but this is, you know, this touched everybody. And so, you know, what's that, you know, again, the ability to offer public education in a remote environment. Um, I don't think that was, you know, I don't think people were ready for that for sure. And so I think we've learned a lot about public health, about public education. I think we've talked a lot about, transportation um, and obviously things like broadband and others that are the backbone of the ability to do things in remote ways, um, um, you know, I, I think are much higher on people's agenda today than they were pre-COVID. One of the things we've talked about a lot over the years is the role of uh, local leadership, uh, you know, in towns and uh, cities, counties, whatever, through, through, throughout America, because the headlines are always grabbed by what's happening in the, the White House or the elections or, you know, this, that and the other. But, but what do you think the, 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 the role is of uh, local leadership now in rebuilding uh, cities in America? Well, I, I think, and let me d deal with both the physical and the social emotional components to it. And, and again, first of all, I think um, all the policy debates are important and the decisions that are made at a national level are, are significant and important. But that's not the product, right? The policy is not the product. It, it, it only matters when it, you know, when it changes uh, a person, a family, a neighborhood or something. So, and that's what local government does, right? It trans translates those big policy issues into actions that actually impact an individual, a family or neighborhood or a community. So, so I think actually the leadership principally has, has come over the probably the last 18 months to two years, principally from local officials who've, who've had to deal with um, you know, a mask requirements and, and um, you know, again, uh, building capacity in public health and working in partnership with the private sector and the nonprofit communities to, to build uh, a strategy to how to deal with, uh, with the COVID um, challenges. And so that leadership, I think, is, is you know, it has been extraordinarily important. It's been extraordinarily visible and probably well ahead of the national government in terms of the reactions and response. The other is, is we were dealing with, you know, issues like racial re reconciliation and social justice questions. Those 
were happening at the same time. And so, you know, mayors and city managers and county administrators and county board chairs and elected officials at the local level were, um, you know, as I describe it, you, you were multitasking on huge issues uh, that you were going to have to deal with. Underlying all that was a real under, uh, you know, a real challenge of what was going to happen to your fiscal capacity, right? What was going to happen to revenues? You know, what was going to, how were you going to deal with your own workforce? So there's a whole bunch of institutional elements that the local leaders had to deal with during this time. Uh, in addition to the, you know, community-based issues you had to deal with. So, you know, I describe it as this is, this is one of those once in a generation kinds of, or you hope it is, challenges that, that, you know, test the leadership and organizational capacities of local government beyond what most people have ever thought they've had to deal with. And what do you think, what do you think the, the health of that uh, cohort is right now? I know it's a bit of a general question, but, you know, I've, I've I, a lot of people are, uh, you know, put quite a lot into this and, uh, you know, the sort of public servant level. I've read that uh, quite a few people have now retired or that, you know, they've, they've uh, lost people from the from the workforce. Do you, you, what are some of the challenges there just in, in terms of going again, if you like? Well, I mean, I, I think part of the, um, you know, I think you, you know, I think it also hits at a generational transformation time, um, you know, and so, you know, to some extent, I think it's, um, you know, you never want a crisis, but I think on the one hand, it's an exciting time to be in the public service, right? I mean, there's no question, um, you know, I've, I've written a couple of pieces that have said, I think forevermore, we will have a different definition of what essential worker is. Um, um, you know, the people we have counted on who didn't get to stay home, um, you know, whether that was a teacher or a healthcare worker or a person in the grocery store or, you know, all of those folks um, actually kept this society together, right? Um, and we're at risk during this whole time. So on the one hand, I think it's, you know, um, there are people who uh, have gone through this that probably said, I've had enough. But on the other hand, I think we hope anyway there's a new cohort of people who are who will step to this challenge because it is important. They make a difference in communities every day. And, you know, maybe the COVID experience has highlighted that for people who never thought about it. So let's turn to infrastructure, because because obviously there's a, 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 you know, we've talked about this as a big piece in terms of uh, rebuilding infrastructure, which was needed anyway, you know, I mean, COVID or, 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 or not. And obviously the president has released his uh, his uh, his uh, bill. First of all, do you, do you, do you think the, the, the current uh, proposals that are on the table address the, the, the need here for uh, rebuilding infrastructure? Well, I mean, I, you know, you have to commend the president for, for taking it on um, because, you know, we, you know, I, I don't think this is much of an exaggeration, at least on the traditional definition of infrastructure that we in the United States have probably cannibalized about two generations worth of investment without making uh, reinvestment in it. And so I think this is particularly highlighted in a, a good part of that. Um, um, you know, so I think um, it's certainly not going to solve the whole infrastructure question, but it is a huge initiative if it passes that will provide momentum not only for what I would call the traditional 
infrastructure, um, but reaching to, to some areas where um, people maybe not thought of, um, you know, I, we thought of the electric grid, for instance, as sort of different and separate. It's, it's fundamental. The broadband issue is now fundamental to the, you know, to the, to modern society. So you still have bridges and roads and transit and, um, but we've got water systems and the things that are below the surface of the road, for instance, that um, are huge investments that are going to need to be made over time. And, and uh, you know, I, I was talking to a manager in the, in the Southwest. And one of the things that I think most of us, uh, you know, don't really recognize is that that part of the country, part of the South and part of the South and Southwest and West, you know, all grew up at the same time. And that infrastructure is come and due. Um, you know, so that that's 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and that infrastructure it all coming due at the same time. And so, you know, it's interesting to think about um, what that presents in terms of both local and federal challenges. And, uh, and again, there's a huge state role in this that you kind of hope the states sort of get their, their attention to it. Um, now the question is going to be which definition of infrastructure, um, you know, um, the president has proposed a fairly broad one that includes what I would call human capital infrastructure. Um, and uh, that's a broader definition than some feel comfortable with, at least it biting off at one time. So we'll, we'll see, um, you know, whether that actually, what, what comes out of the Congress. Um, there's a lot of energy around being prepared when it comes out at the local level. Uh, lots of people working on, you know, the kinds of projects to get them started, to get uh, some things that have been on the on the back burner for a long time to, to be able to improve uh, the ability both to service the communities, but also to compete worldwide. I mean, do you think, I mean, that's, those are really interesting points, I guess, and maybe we could uh, take one at a time in a way. Do you think, uh, do you think there's, uh, do you think there's enough of a, let's call it a consensus to, uh, to get, something passed here do you think uh, do you think because i think i don't think many people would argue with your main point which is that uh, there hasn't been the investment in infrastructure that uh, you know america has needed we hopefully you know we've had characterized the last four years of uh, government as as very divisive and very hard to get uh, to get things done maybe do you think now there is a, enough of a consensus around this issue that that some uh, that a bill will be passed here um you know i want to be an optimist that that a bill is going to pass because i think you've stated the case is i don't think whether you're a republican or a democrat there's any uh, lack of consensus around there is a need I think it is what's the scale of that need and how do you pay for it, right? Those are the two things. And underlying all that is who gets credit for it. Um, and I mean, which is a it's, is the political equation that's involved in this. And um, so you're hopeful that there'll be enough people who recognize the need is substantial and, and second, that you can come to an agreement about how it gets paid for. Um, my guess it's going to be smaller than the president has proposed uh, if it's going to pass and uh, and uh, in probably narrower 
than than what he proposed. But I think that at least caused a debate about it, which I think itself is important. Um, but at some point, um, you know, like the circumstance in Texas when the you know the entire grid went down and the rolling blackouts in California every year, right? Um, those are things that are, you know, um, pretty obvious to people now. And so hopefully, I mean, the transportation was obvious to everybody. I mean, any, any metropolitan area, you know, that that's probably one or two or three in terms of the top issues. So, so hopefully there'll be enough momentum and enough pressure that something will come out. I guess I want to turn to your other point, which is uh, in terms of uh, making uh, America competitive on uh, on the global scale. And, and a lot of people these days are talking about uh, smart cities and the need to uh, invest in smart cities. So what, what, what do you understand by the term smart city? Well, it's interesting because there are lots of different definitions. I mean, my, my definition, um, and lots of people use it, I think, is the applications of technologies to improve the life of people and communities, to allow uh, businesses to grow and prosper, and to support, um, you know, an, an infrastructure, uh, both um, physical and social, uh, that allows people to sustain a quality of life and for us as a country to compete um, for both jobs and uh, businesses uh, over a long period of time. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure there's probably quicker and easier definitions, but it is a pretty broad concept. And I think the difference some people have is that it becomes technology focused. And I think for those of us at particularly the local level, it is it is really resident and business and visitor focused. It, it what what makes that life easier for people? And, and, you know, can you are there examples that you could give us of uh, you know towns and cities that you know where where you know it doesn't have to have uh, completed the whole nine yards if you like, but places where you know differences have been made for citizens. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, um, you know, there are now these um, smart city indexes um, and uh, in rankings, and so so you have the ones you would expect. Um, the large cities that that have the ability to make um, substantial investments, the New Yorks, um, the San Jose's, the the Phoenixes, those kind of folks. But interesting, smaller communities like Aurora, Illinois, and and Dubuque, Iowa, and Blacksburg, Virginia, um, smaller communities are seeing it as a competitive advantage um, to be able to um, offer um, technologies that both improve the service delivery, improve efficiency, and allow them to compete um, for businesses and jobs that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to do. So, there, um, you know, I mean, I, I would suspect every community is has a smart um, uh, has a smart city strategy in some form or another. Um, many are further along, obviously. And the other is, is it's really a partnership, really, uh, between the private sector providers in many cases and the technology providers that um, partner with communities in order to ensure that the uh, smart technology infrastructure is not only current today, but has the ability to be adapted as technologies change. I mean, it's interesting to listen to because, you, you know, you're talking about, as you said in the definition uh, 
piece and then the answer you've just given you're very much focusing on delivering services and uh, you know benefits to citizens you know and uh, making uh, lives better and public service about impacting the lives of people as opposed to the the headlines that uh, that people would read my final question is a bit of a difficult one to maybe get your head round but uh, you you know coming out of covid obviously there's a big job to be done not just in america but uh, throughout the western world to 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 heal some of these uh, divisions but all too often at a national political level we we you know there isn't a lot of discourse there are people shouting at each other and there isn't really a, a huge amount of uh, progress being made at uh, at that level how do we bridge that gap how do we actually you know uh, provide help to people to move these cities on so that people's lives are better we're more competitive but at the same time you know we we put some of these divisions behind us well i mean uh, for, um you know i hate to use a simplistic answer for a very complex question but i mean it takes leadership right it takes leadership in political the political leaders it takes community leaders it, it it's willing you know people willing to create safe places in communities to have really hard conversations. And, you know, we have, you know, for, for most of us in the Western world, anyway, we have a long legacy of, of, um, of inequality and, and uh, racial injustice that we need to deal with. And, um, and um, you know, those are uncomfortable conversations. And so, you know, I think the the question is, are we going to have the leadership in these communities? And I, I see it all over the place. So I'm, I'm, I'm really optimistic about the level of conversation. And I think it's very different than sort of the dialogue that's going on nationally. Um, you know, because people have a very different stake in their community. Um, and uh, so they're much more likely to engage. Um, I'm not suggesting for a minute it's easy and you know, the, the challenges around, um, you know, policing in the United States um, are, are huge challenges. And uh, but I, I see police chiefs and mayors and city managers uh, trying to have those conversations in their community about what kind of community we want to be, what changes do we need to make? And, you know, how can, for instance, policing be different than it's been in the past? And what's, what's the responsibility of of police and, and local institutions, um, you know, but it's, it, this is not a short term, you know, right. this is not a short term. And, and, you know, my, my concern is whether we have the attention span, you know, to, to take this on legitimately, which is going to be a long-term issue. Bob, thanks ever so much. That was, uh, that was really great. And thanks for taking the time again to uh, talk to us. Always, always good to talk with you, Stephen. Continuing this theme of leadership and what it will take to rebuild, I invited the chief executive from one of America's smaller cities to be the next guest on our show. Karen Pincos is the city manager in El Cerrito, California, and a former president of the ICMA. Karen, hi. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk. Looks like a lovely day starting behind you. Yes, <laughs> it should be. It should be mm -hmm. a great day here in El Cerrito. 
pretty happy. Well, tell us a little bit about El Cerrito. Sure. For those of us who don't perhaps know El Cerrito, tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So El Cerrito is in the San Francisco Bay Area. We are in the East Bay, so we look across at our very famous neighbor. Um, We're a very small city in the Bay Area, especially comparatively speaking, when you think of the greater Bay Area, like San Francisco, San Jose, Oakland. We are four square miles and 25,000 population, so we're, we're pretty small. We're right in the middle of of everything. That's one of the things I like to talk about El Cerritos. We're in the middle of everything. We're just north of the city of Berkeley um, with the very famous University of California there. So um, it's a wonderful community. It's a mostly bedroom community. We have kind of one sort of commercial strip at the foot of our hills that kind of aligns San Pablo Avenue, um, goes from Oakland all the way to Hercules up uh, north of the easternmost part of the bay. So um, it's a beautiful town, very temperate weather, uh, lovely views of, of the bay from our hills and a really active uh, population. It's just a, it's a joy to, to work here. It's, it's really my dream job. I've worked here for, in September will be 20 years. So wow, 20 years. it's a wonderful place. Yeah. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about what the role of a city manager is then. What do you, what, what do you do for El Cerrito? Sure. So as the city manager, I'm essentially what could be compared to in, say, private business uh, as a CEO. So the city council and including the mayor are elected here in El Cerrito. We don't separately elect a mayor. We elect five council members. And then each year a new mayor is selected among them. Uh, They select among themselves. Uh, So the mayor and the city council are kind of like a board of directors where they are elected by the people. They set policy. uh, They listen to their constituents and they essentially work to uh, provide services to the people through the staff. And so I am the, uh, the chief executive of the staff. And so my job is to implement all of the policies of the city council. And then on the flip side, as a management professional, my job is also to make sure that I'm aware of what best practices are in the industry, in government, and how to provide those services and provide that information and recommendations to the city council for them to be able to develop that policy. Um, Um, It's a really wonderful kind of blend of being something I really love, which is local government and how government works and managing people and being able to um, implement a vision uh, for a community and and essentially make people's lives better. That I think at the end of the day is, is really the biggest outcome of my job. Let's talk a little bit about that vision for the community, if you uh, if, if you don't mind. One of the things that we've been talking about in in this series is really positioning, you know, cities for the for the future. So, what's part of the strategic plan for El Cerrito? It's it's interesting you talk about strategic plan. We actually have an, a strategic plan in place that we have developed uh, beginning back in 2013, and that we are are looking to to update. Uh, we had hoped to do it. Uh, last year, but other things have intervened. The world has changed. But uh, part of our strategic plan is, you know, kind of our mission to be a very um, innovative, uh, connected community and connected in in all sorts of different ways, um, not just within, you know, the the things you might think of typically for technology or or roads or infrastructure, but also connected to one another, developing a sense of place trying to make sure we're maintaining people's health and safety and, and, and trying to do all of the things that a community wants for itself. That's a real vision, kind of putting that into practice with the different strategic goals that we've outlined and that we're looking to the future is how do we develop that further? El Cerrito was actually founded back in 1917 
It um, kind of sprung up as a burb, as most did around here after World War II. So building in our community, it's, it's different than, say, a suburb out where you just have all this room and you can build all new things. It's more redevelopment here in our city. So rebuilding our community, how do we do that and what do we want that to look like? El Cerrito is actually very fortunate in that even though, again, we're a mostly bedroom community, we're bookended by two transit stations, BART in the Bay Area. The Bay Area Rapid Transit is our train system that goes throughout the Bay Area. We have two on either side of our town. And so what we have tried to focus on is how do we take advantage of this amazing transit amenity that connects us literally to everywhere in the Bay Area? And how do we make that work best for us? And so we've been focused a lot particularly lately on transit-oriented development around the BART stations, try to build housing amenities, what they, what some people are calling kind of the 15-minute city, right, where you can do everything you need within a 15-minute walk. Um, you know, you think of that more like I used to live in downtown Oakland. That's really where that's gone. And so kind of trying to do that here in El Cerrito is in, a, in a suburb is a little bit more challenging with, you know, it's been car-centric, for example, and, and looking at these big old parking lots that now might be housing developments. I mean, trying to kind of transform what we think of, of our community and how that works. That has been, it's been really exciting. Uh, we've really been working hard on on that, even, even in these times, uh, you know, trying to, um, trying to kind of re-envision what our commercial strip looks like, how our community is connected to one another in, in all sorts of ways. I mean, you've used the word community, you know, a few times uh, in, in, in that discussion. And one of the things that we've been looking at a lot in this series is building trust in communities, because in a lot of communities throughout America, that 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 trust has been has has been shaken. You know, how do you go about doing that in, in, in El Cerrito? That is a very, it's a very timely question um, for us in El Cerrito. We have had a lot of financial challenges, um, a lot, that, you know, that started before the pandemic that the pandemic has exacerbated. And so we've had some budget challenges. We've had, you know, and this is certainly true, uh, you know, I'm sure across the world with the economy sort of halting the way it has and, and changing the way it has, you know, we've had to adjust and we've had to adapt and, you know, there are various things that we're looking at, particularly within our budget, um, how to how do how do we reduce costs? But you can't do that without reducing services. Right. People equal services in a local government. You know, we don't make widgets. We provide services and we you know, it has to be people to do that. So if I'm looking to maybe cut back a service, there's a constituency that's very um, impassioned about that. And here in El Cerrito for a really long time, we have tried to provide every service that has been asked for. Right now, we're not able to do that. And so that has been a big challenge is how do we how do we provide services to the most people you know, in the in the most cost effective way? And so we're, we're, we're working on that. But what I have found as far as trust is it can take a really long time to build trust and then something something happens that can damage it and you're working from behind no matter what. I think engaging the community is really critical here. And the community, when I say community, that is in itself a challenge. When you have something that that is being discussed in good times or bad, it has a constituency and the people who care about it show up. Right. And so... Those are the people sometimes that are very, um, very active, very loud, and it's easy to 
be, you know, as a as an elected official and as a public official like me, I'm not elected, but um, as a public official, it's easy to hear the loud people and think that that's what the entire community thinks, which is not necessarily true. It may be true. They may be representative of a big group of people. But the challenge is, how do we hear from the quiet people? How do we hear from people who are just going about their day-to-day lives and maybe aren't as interested in, you know, the city budget? Um, And I dare say most people aren't. And that's also the conundrum of local government is if people aren't paying attention to you, that's kind of a measure of you doing your job, right? If right. if nobody notices, you know, the, the garbage is getting picked up, you flush the toilet and it works, you know, you don't drive over potholes, they're happy and they have no reason. People don't go to City Hall necessarily because they want to. <laughs> they go because they have to. So if you don't have an interaction with your local government, that's, you know, that is a measure of success, which is odd. But that's not what we want. We want people to be engaged. We want people to participate. And yet we want to hear from from more people. We want to hear from all people. And that's the hardest part is how do we engage everybody, especially in these times where we can't even get together? How do we engage more people so that we can hear a broad, you know, I've always said that a good policy is one that upsets everybody maybe a little bit. Right, because a good policy is meant to be a compromise. It's meant to be something that is good for everyone and may not make one side or another totally happy, but everybody gets, you know, maybe a half a loaf. And that really is is difficult right now. And I think that, you know, again, you can't argue the issue of social media and all of this either. And right now, considering this is all we're doing, this is, you know, it's all on a screen. It's really easy to be nasty to a screen because you're not thinking of someone as a flesh and blood human being. And, you know, the, in, in the political discourse, especially in this country over the past several years has given, I said this, uh, I've said this many times in some of my talks, it's given people permission to be nasty. And these are even the people who like us. These are people who support the city. There, There's like all this, this kind of edge to everybody's tone. And it's really depressing. Um, and, and one of the things that I've been, you know, looking forward to more than anything is getting back in person and and having public meetings in person again, I never thought I would say like, oh, I look forward to late nights sitting at a council uh, chambers, but I do because I think that, you know, again, this this lack of, of actual communication, real people to people communication has exacer- exacerbated the lack of trust. It's so much easier to be, you know, and, and, and in these times with the pandemic and everybody's anxious, everybody's struggling, they're having personal, you know, pe- you know, things have happened in their families. I mean, everybody's on edge right now. That has made it much worse. And I, 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 in fact, I have to keep trying to remember that when I get frustrated with myself or with others, it's like, you know, we're all going through a thing right now. And we just have to be really mindful of that. And it's it's really hard. What are some of the, I mean, you talked a bit about the pandemic there. And, uh, you know, uh, what are some, and hopefully, as we start to come out of it, what are some of the lessons that, that, that you've learned from a city manager's perspective? Interestingly, I've learned that I can run a city from my dining room table. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, uh, but I think that the that using technology, uh, particularly all of the remote work and the public meetings, 
it's, it, it's, you know, I, I've said it's been a blessing and a curse, but it definitely has been a blessing in that, you know, we've learned a lot about how we can work and how we should work. And I think that that's going to continue to evolve, not just with me, but with all of my team. So, you know, I don't need to see everyone at City Hall every day. And I think there was, you know, you talk about trust. There was a little bit of a trust issue when it came to working from home in the in the in the before times, you know, like did, you know, can I trust that people will be productive? Can I trust that people will do their job? Well, guess what? They can. Hey, when you treat people like grownups, they tend to act like them. Amazing. But um, but that's one of the things we've learned, I think, is is how we work and how other people work. And then how we disseminate information. Again, I've, I've not been able to do that publicly. We haven't done a lot of like things like, you know, we might do mailings, but now everything has become electronic. So I think that that is a that is one thing I've, I've definitely learned is, is how we work, I think, is 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 definitely changing. We have to be responsive to that in the future. I think that um, there's a lot, you know, as I was kind of referencing before, there's a lot of, of mindfulness, I think, that has come into it. And because everyone is on edge and because everyone is anxious and people have a lot going on with themselves, managing people has been very different for me because what's been different is that I, I it's not business as usual. And we're going through something that has never been gone through before. They don't you know, usually when you have an emergency, like, you know, in Bay Area, it would be like an earthquake or a wildfire. The thing happens, you deal with the thing, and then you recover, right? right? There's a response that we're trained to respond to, and then you recover. We're not even in the recovery stage yet. We've still been responding for a year and a half, pretty much. That is the challenge. That is something they don't train you for with emergency operations. You usually are dealing with the aftermath by now. We're we're not. So we still have that to go. We still have recovery to go. So having to manage a, you know, you know, a year plus long emergency that is not ongoing, uncertain is really that has been a big challenge and there's going to be a lot of focus I think when we're looking back on this someday on how we were able to manage through that crisis where where it's something completely unprecedented completely unprecedented I can talk to anyone about how to deal with a wildfire or not anyone but anyone who's dealt with one before on how they did it but this is and this is a worldwide thing too so we're Someone uh, described it as, you know, we're, we're building the plane as it's flying or whatever. You know, I mean, we're making this up as we go along because it's unprecedented. And so that has been something I think we all have learned on how to manage ourselves, how to manage other people and how to make sure we're, we're mindful of what everybody is dealing with. You know, I can't, you know, be upset with someone who misses a deadline, for example, the same way as before, because they, you know, there's there's different reasons for it. It's not to excuse it, but it's more like. You know, you have to you have to manage differently. You have to think differently. You have to give yourself a break. It's not we are these are not normal times, and we can't we have to we have to give ourselves permission to sort of take that step back and know it's okay to not be okay, and manage your folks accordingly, and be able to work your team accordingly. That is something I I think we're all continuing to figure out. That sounds so a bit more esoteric, but I think that you know just the biggest challenge of of you know, you're only a good leader if people are able to follow you. And so how do you, you know, how do you, you know, how do you lead through something like this when you have no roadmap to, to do your, you know, it's, it's just been, a, it's been, but leaders lead and, and that's what we do. And, and, you know, continuing to try to, to, to set the tone and, you know, and try to um, be kind to myself, <laughs> I think has, has, has been something that I've, I've certainly been uh, more mindful of. 
I think the other thing you were talking, I mean, absolutely, right? I think one of the things that you were, one, one of the issues with COVID generally is is not only, as you say, um, uh, you know, something without a, a, a route map, but, but very often what we've had to do as well is, is, is look at other systemic issues that, uh, you know, uh, uh, we are part of our societies, if you like, that, uh, that, that COVID has, has shone a light on. And, and, and uh, you know, we've talked about a lot about inequality uh, when it comes to COVID, but we've also had the Black Lives Matter uh, protests, not just in, in America now, but through throughout the world. What, what difference does that make to uh, a community like yours? Um, it, I've described it before as, you know, when particularly I think the big, you know, the big unfortunate event of George Floyd's murder last year, in the middle of of everything, starting with the pandemic, was such a huge reckoning for all of us. And you know, I you know I was uh, on the ICMA board at the time and finishing up my last year. And, and ICMA developed we developed our our statement on systemic racism. I think that this is it's different because. A number of reasons. First and foremost, I think the pandemic is is a part of it. Like you said, it's really shown a light on the inequalities of our society. Um, and then you can't take out, you know, what social media did and what technology did to to shine a light on it too. I mean, we found out about George Floyd's murder because a young woman had a video on her phone, and that just, you know, it. I think that you know, it it again, it's shown a light on it you know, systemic racism, what that means is our society was built this way by design. I mean, it was designed this way. And as, as, as a white person, you don't see it. And that's again, by design, because it is not meant for me to see, it is meant to benefit me and, 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 and sort of coming to, and I tend to, you know, I, I, I believe, I believed that I was a pretty aware person. Here in El Cerrito, we actually have a have a long history of working toward inclusion and equality. Um, you know, back in you know the '80s, we actually uh, had a um, human relations commission, which their sole it's a volunteer study sponsored commission. Their sole mission is to educate and um, do, through events people about diversity and the diversity and inclusion in our in our society or in our community. And you know, sadly, about five years ago now we had a, a hate crime in our community a, a black family um was they you know let they lit something on fire in their yard and left a horrible note and our community rallied and there's um famous uh, uh movement called not in our town that uh we are one of our council members actually you know kind of hooked up with them and we the next thing you know we've we've printed and created we've got not in our town signs all over El Cerrito, we have joined a East Bay group against hate. So we, you know, we've actually been doing some of a lot of this work, you know, for several years, which, you know, I, I don't want to say like, hey, we've done it before. It was, you know, it, it was trendy or whatever. I don't mean that in that way. But I but when this happened, you know, El Cerrito once again, you know, rose to the occasion in order to try to make people aware of this. I mean, you see, you know, Black Lives Matter signs on people's lawns all over town. We have flown the Black Lives Matter flag over our city hall, which was replaced by the pride flag for June is pride month. So we have been, you know, we we as a city have had equity and inclusion as a value for a really long time. And I'm really proud of that. We have a really, you know, great uh, city staff, including our police department, we had a rally here near City Hall. Our police chief went out in uniform and knelt with 
the protesters, I mean, we we take that very seriously here. We're a community that very much embraces equity and inclusion and wants to foster that. We became a sanctuary city on purpose when this was all being discussed about sanctuary cities several, about three, four years ago now, four years ago now, um, uh, when, you know, sanctuary cities were sort of on the hot seat for, um, you know, kind of being accused of shielding undocumented immigrants. Right. Our city, in response, became one. Um, so we, we're, we're, a, we're a different kind of city. We're a, we're a city that definitely is maybe a little bit... Uh, in your face about it and proudly. And so even then, even with all of that, um, we we still struggle. It doesn't mean that we're, oh, so we've done all this stuff, so we're good. By no means am I even saying that. In fact, I would say that because we've, we've been working on this for quite some time, we're positioned to keep going further. My mayor and I have talked about, and my mayor wants to do this year, um, a, a kind of our own, uh, particularly within staff and, and viewing city services, a city budget through an equity lens. And so we're going to be uh, starting on that this summer. Um, I'm a part of the inaugural ICMA Leadership Institute on Race, Equity, and Inclusion. And one of the things that I've been working on is how is a small city able to kind of do that? Equity and inclusion is is not a, a, a task to complete. It's not a checkbox or a goal you tick off. It is a value. It underlines everything. But again, because our society is the way it is, it's baked in so deep, how do you identify that so that you can bring it up and then make sure you're you're looking at everything through that lens? And so we're going to be starting to work on that. But again, the challenge is for a small city, and most cities are small cities, I don't have the ability to say hire an equity officer and just make that their task to go through all that. This is going to be a different type of, of, of uh, scenario for us in El Cerrito, but we're up to the challenge because, again... We're ready to continue to go further because we've, we've focused on this before, and we're really proud of that. And I know we're unique. Not a lot of cities are like that. Um, there are other cities that may struggle because, you know, there's a lot of backlash. And, and the backlash to me is because it's really hard to face right. what we take for granted as, you know, something that hurts other people. It's really hard to face. And we don't want it to be that way. And we don't want to think of ourselves that way either. But but it's it's you know, you can't you can't change without identifying the issue. And so it's as hard as it is to face the issue, as as hard as it is to be uncomfortable about your role in it or or your tacit role in it. How do you change it so that it doesn't continue? And and I, you know, I'm proud of our community that we have we have really put ourselves in that position. But you know, I mean, it's you know that's one community. It needs to be it needs to be spread around. And so hopefully, you know, we can begin to you know continue to lead by example here in El Cerrito and and you know just make sure that people are welcome here and that we are doing what we can to shine the light on what's wrong so that we can make it right. So my last question would be, you're on the East Bay, you know, your nearest neighbour is San Francisco, so you're well positioned to talk about uh, this, looking at the future. What 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 does a city like yours need to do to uh, to future-proof it? What do you need to do to, uh, to you know, be uh, thriving in the 21st century? Well, um, I think that, you know, this is... <laughs> You know, if you'd asked me this a couple of years ago, I would have had a very different answer. Right. Uh, I think the pandemic really has thrown a big loop into everything. I think it still comes down to resources um, for a small city like ours. We don't, you know, I don't, we don't do our own utilities, for example. We would not be in a position, say, for example, to do our own broadband or anything like that. We just don't have the 
the, the time, the space, the money, that type of thing that a bigger city would. Um, what we can do to position ourselves for the future is make sure that our community is as open as it can be and connected as it can be, kind of going back to what I talked about before. A lot of what we've worked on, and, and particularly here in California, we have a big housing crisis, for example. And so the state of California sort of uh, gives every uh, city goals for building housing. And one of the things we've done is we've developed a specific plan which uh, targets our commercial area in order to try to promote development and, again, focusing on transit-oriented development. So not just building housing and not just building amenities in the area, but complete streets for um, making sure that we have the infrastructure for, for different types of transit. I think that actually is a huge, huge thing that's really burgeoning and it's really beginning. Things like, you know, making sure we have enough as many charging stations as right. gas stations because electric cars are going to start happening. Uh, that's that's going to be coming online, uh, making sure that we have the ability to to be able to provide a, a variety of transit options or at least the the, uh, you know, put ourselves in a position for those things to happen. That actually, I think, is 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 a more immediate issue because that's that's changing really quickly making sure that we're taking advantage of clean energy solar and being able to build energy efficient buildings i mean even just you know you can't build housing the same way you used to we actually have a wonderful project that's happening near one of our bart stations that is a modular high rise and i don't know if you've ever seen this but they literally build each apartment separately in a factory in vallejo about an hour away and then they truck each apartment and stack them up like Legos, and then they put the whole building together. It's a totally different way to build. And it's it's really interesting and efficient and union built. So it's it's just a whole, I mean, things are, are changing. And so being able as a city to put ourselves in a position to be ready for what comes. And so that, me, that may mean having to say, change our zoning code. We've changed our zoning code to a form-based code along our avenues so that it's not focused just on the numbers, but on you know what the whole neighborhood looks like. Being ready to be able to embrace new technology. And that's not easy, again, for a small city. I, I, I know that's my perspective is, you know, we don't have a lot of resources, a lot of staff to be able to just kind of put some of these things into place. But how do we set up a plan? How do we strategically plan for what is to come. And I think that, like I said, a couple years ago, you know, that's probably the way we've been going. But right now with the pandemic, it's really hard to be strategic because we're still managing a crisis. So, you know, having, having vision, right. I feel like that's been, that's, what's been put on hold is sort of the strategy and the vision has just been like paused while I'm trying to, you know, tread water here. And, but you know, even just talking about it, it's like, no, we at least we've put ourselves in a position to be able to embrace the future, whatever that future holds for us. And like I said, I think that the connectivity of every in every way that you can connect a community to each other, to other communities and to the rest of the Bay Area and the state, that I think is one of the biggest things that we are trying to make sure we're in a position to be able to take advantage of. Well, Karen, thank you, thank you ever so much uh, for talking to us today, and, uh, and and look forward to catching up with you soon. So, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. We've got one more episode in this series on rebuilding America coming up next. I chat with developers of new technologies who are bringing new solutions to tomorrow's challenges. Until then, I'm Stephen Horn.